Do you ever get frustrated that the system you're working in is so inefficient? Have you tried your best to manage your own time only to be scuppered at the last minute by something that should have been sorted out by someone else? And do you feel able to raise the issues you can see without being judged or criticised for moaning? In this episode, I'm joined by Dr Ed Pooley, GP and time management and communication skills educator, who has an interesting take on time management for busy professionals. We talk about how making individual time efficiencies can only get you so far if you're working in a system that is unwilling or unable to change, and how better conversations are the only way to make constructive changes that count. So listen if you want to learn about the three types of demand and get some practical tips about how to identify and raise issues without raising hackles. And find out why some time management techniques, if used alone, can be a little bit like putting a Ferrari engine into a Mini. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, life hacks for doctors and busy professionals who want to beat burnout and work happier. I'm Dr. Rachel Morris. I'm a GP, turned coach, speaker and specialist in teaching resilience. And I'm interested in how we can wake up and be excited about going to work, no matter what. I've had 20 years experience of working in the NHS, both on the front line and teaching leadership and resilience. I know what it's like to feel overwhelmed, worried about making a mistake and one crisis away from not coping. 2021 promises to be a particularly challenging year. Even before the coronavirus crisis, we were facing unprecedented levels of burnout. We have been compared to frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water, working harder and longer. And the heat has been turned up so slowly that we hardly notice the extra long days becoming the norm and have got used to the low-grade feelings of stress and exhaustion. Let's face it, frogs generally only have two choices stay in the pan and be boiled alive or jump out of the pan and leave but you are not a frog and that's where this podcast comes in you have many more options than you think you do it is possible to be master of your own destiny and to craft your work and life so that you can thrive even in the most difficult of circumstances Through training as an executive and team coach, I discovered some hugely helpful resilience and productivity tools that transformed the way I approached my work. I've been teaching these principles over the last few years as the Shapes Toolkit programme, because if you're happier at work, you'll simply do a better job. In this podcast, I'll be inviting you inside the minds of friends, colleagues and experts, all who have an interesting take on this, so that together we can take back control to thrive, not just survive in our work and our lives and love what we do again. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours. Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash getyourlifeback. So it's fantastic to have with me on the podcast today, Dr. Ed Pooley. Now, Ed is a GP. Uh, He's also a communication and time management expert and trainer. So welcome, Ed. Thank you for having me. It's, It's great to be here. Really good to have you. Now, I wanted to get you on the podcast for all sorts of reasons. You seem to have this wealth of knowledge about how to manage our time, how to have these really difficult conversations, and actually how conversations and time actually are are more uh, closely linked than we would think they were. But first of all, tell me how you got into all of this, because you haven't always been a GP, have you? No. So I I started off as a, a graduate student in medicine. I worked, I did a basic biomedical sciences degree, then a master's, and was kind of going down the educational route and uh, was working on a PhD in psychiatry. And to fund that, I was kind of working as a web development, a web designer, running my own business. And 
I, I kind of always had this thought of wanting to go into medicine and I didn't quite get in there the first time around. So I went off and did something else and then thought, actually, I'm going to regret it if I don't reapply. So I reapplied and got in and then went through my training. And I was kind of one of those people that that's enthusiastic about everything, wants to be everything that you do as you go through each rotation. So I finally settled on GP as being kind of the most flexible option, really, because it's one of those ones where you can build in and, and change your career path very easily because you're, you're sort of a, a generalist. So lots of sort of different routes. So you end up as a GP having done graduate medicine. How, how old were you when you eventually qualified? I qualified just before my 30th birthday. <laughs> okay. So the reason, the reason why I'm asking that is because I have noticed that I think there's quite a difference between people that qualify um, as a graduate and people that you know, I know that when I qualified, I was really young. I was only 23 and I felt very disempowered. Mm. I sort of just did everything that everybody asked me to do without sort of standing up. Whereas my, my colleague who I worked with very closely, he again was a graduate student, had had another job, quite a very responsible job actually before he went to medicine. And then when he was working as a, a junior doctor was felt much more able to have sort of difficult conversations or sort of challenge his consultants and things like that. So I just think it, it's quite, it's quite interesting the sort of not just the age you are when you qualify in medicine, but actually the the maturity that you have. Yeah, I think it, I think it does give you a different perspective. I think that you've kind of you're entering medicine later in your in your life in your career. You've often done other stuff before, so you've, you've got that other experience under your belt in terms of just understanding how workplaces work, understanding hierarchies and how things, and you're able to sort of, rather than get caught up in it, you, you can sit back and you can see, well, why is that happening? Or, oh, I like the way that's happening, or I can see why that, and you can, it, it gives you sort of mental headspace to stand back and, and analyse things, I guess, in a bit more detail, because you're not just trying to convey and learn medicine you're also trying to to establish the rules of a working environment and because I'd already done that it, it just becomes easier yeah do you think that's why you've sort of you know we were talking earlier and I said oh sounds like you're a real expert you're going oh no I'm not really an expert but for me you've got a lot of wisdom you've got a lot of knowledge about this do you think that's because of the approach that you took was actually you were not just looking at what you were doing but it's actually how you were doing it yeah, I guess so. I think I think that for me, part of the the thing that I enjoy about medicine is how everything fits together. So, you know, for me as a GP, a lot of the focus is on diagnosis, managing uncertainty, and knowing what to do with patients. But actually, a bigger part of that is well, how do you manage all those competing demands? How do you communicate with people and their families? Because if you can get that right, that actually saves you time and, and, and avoids you being caught up in a lot of drama that you've you sort of unnecessarily created. Uh, so for me, it kind of all all fits together really. And I like to I like to tweak different things and processes to see what works, what doesn't work, um, and and that sort of fits my my style of medicine. And that that's kind of something I I talk a lot about to other. Uh, trainers and trainees about techniques that have worked for me, things that haven't worked for me, and how we use tools outside of medicine. So things from psychology, from psychotherapy, from business, rather than just thinking, well, this is the mindset of medicine. This is how I've always done things. And this is what the experience of my medical elders has been. I, I, I like to kind of think, well, is there a different way? Has Have another group of people solved this problem that we can we can bring into medicine. Because mm, traditionally, I don't think we've been very good at that in medicine, have we? Using the stuff from the, the business world, for example, to, to make things better for us. No, and I think, I think that there's often resistance to that. There's almost a sense that, um, you know, business ways of doing things don't apply or you've got to think of the patient at the centre of it. And there's, there's, there's often a degree of, of conflict or of friction when you try to bring in business ideas. And what I quite like is the fact that I can, I can do the business speak and I can do the medical speak. And I think you need people who can navigate both of those, those areas. Um, because without that, you just end up with, with two people not really understanding each other. 
Mm, completely agree. And I think that's the same in, in the other sort of professions like law and accountancy and stuff like mm. that. Yes, we do different, you know, we see patients, they have clients, they have people mm. coming to them with slightly different problems, but still they're feeling overwhelmed. They're still working with a lot of competing demands for people that are quite emotional sometimes, you know, and, and we've been quite slow to, um, look at the processes that are going to well not only make our lives better but actually if you nail your time management you're probably going to be a better doctor as well would you agree yeah i, th- I think one of the, if, if you look at a lot of the causes of burnout in doctors it's often because there are a lot of competing demands and you're often not able to do the things that emotionally nourish you or emotionally validate you of, of you know defining a diagnosis or feeling good about making someone feel better if if you're if if patient care becomes just another task to do just something you've got to survive then i think that creates burnout and it creates conflict and that doesn't lead to a very happy environment to work in and i think if you you know as as a basic exercise what i think is is a really useful thing to do is to reflect on on three aspects and these are in in the systems thinking world um, where people analyze systems and structures they they talk about something called external failure demand internal failure demand and value demand so value demand is the stuff that you should be doing so for me as a gp that would be seeing patients doing referrals assessing investigation results you know if you're a lawyer it might be um, reviewing clients, um, organizing paperwork, uh, communicating with different stakeholders. And that's that's the stuff that you really want to spend all of your time doing. And, and obviously, there is a finite amount of that that you can do. You have a limited capacity. But if you, if you then get rid of the other two bits, which are the kind of unhelpful bits, so internal failure demand is the stuff in your organization that is just being reworked is being redone. So for me as a GP, that might be where I've not really captured all the information I need. So I've had to bring a patient back and therefore that's used up another block of time. Uh, For a lawyer or an accountant, that might be that you haven't captured really what the person wanted. And so therefore there's a complaint or they've come back to and say, well, that's not really what I wanted. And that's just used up more time. So by reducing that, by being aware of say the top three things that cause internal failure demand. And that, and that might be, um, you know, not having the right person seeing the client or the patient at the right time. Um, or it might be having an, a, a suboptimal process for information capture. Um, by looking at those things, you increase your ability to do the thing that you want to do and that you're, you're good at and that only you can do. External failure demand is a bit more challenging. So this, in its bluntest terms, is the stuff that other people create that ends up in your lap. So for general practice, that is stuff that should have been done in, in a hospital care setting that's kind of been dumped on you. And that's a huge source of stress for many GPs. Um, I guess in, uh, you know, in, in accountancy or legal terms, it might be that other people, you know, in that, in the process that you are you're organizing haven't done what they needed to do and so you've ended up working perhaps outside your competence just just to get something done or you've ended up having to go back to that person and then that that just uses up more time because you know time is finite and we can't save it up um and we usually have to do stuff within that time and that involves balancing priorities and we want to spend the time that we have available doing the stuff that we are competent and capable of rather than the stuff that somebody else should have done or where we've had to unnecessarily retread over old ground. Mm. Well, it seems really clear when you put it like that. I love that. I love those, those three concepts. Which ones tends to be the most frustrating? Is it the external failure demand in your experience i well i think they create different feelings so i can i can only talk really from my viewpoint as a gp 
Um, I often get the thing that makes me angry is external failure demand. So where, say, someone in secondary care hasn't done their job and they've expected me to pick up the pieces. And, and often that, that anger and that frustration comes from the fact that there's a patient caught in the middle who doesn't understand that there is a, a delineation of primary and secondary care. They, they, their, their concept of healthcare is that it's one uniform system. So why can't I do the thing that the hospital told me to do or requested of me? Um, it, it makes me appear to be the one who is causing a problem. So that, that tends to create a feeling of frustration and anger. Internal failure demand is is interesting because perhaps of, of all of the of, of all of those those three processes, that one requires the most skill in amending because it's the one where you have to approach colleagues and discuss with them in a, in a sensitive way. How do we do this better without that colleague feeling threatened? Because these are people you're going to have to work with. It's very easy to send a letter back to a, a hospital or a secondary care consultant because you're not in the same building as them. You're not going to have to sort of manage that relationship. I'm not saying that you should be rude, but it's often a bit more difficult if you're in the same room or the same building as someone who you've got to say something quite difficult to, like, well, how did this happen without that person feeling threatened or got at or or frustrated or bullied and I know a lot of the stuff that you've you've looked at before has been about organizational culture and bullying and things like that and you've got to tread a very fine line because ultimately you're trying to make a an, an organization or a process more effective mm. interesting so it's harder to to cope with the internal failure demand perhaps because it, it's maybe closer to home mm. but I guess with the external failure demand sort of looking at from from my viewpoint and I use one of my shapes that I use is the zone of power so that's looking at things that are in your control control I guess with the external failure demand a lot of that and unless you are head of the CCG or chief exec of the NHS trust a lot of that is is actually outside of your control you can't really do much about it apart from sending a a stinky letter um and just just using um demand almost easier to just send the letter about but harder to actually change mm. the internal failure demand more uncomfortable yes. to address but some of that generally is within your control absolutely and and that's 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 the key thing about time management it's recognizing what is in your control and what you need to do about it even where that's uncomfortable that I think is such a, a fascinating concept because a lot of the stuff you know I've been talking about with time management has been very personal. It's mm-hmm. been yeah, I've just done a podcast with Lisa O'Reason, which is all about make time. So what can you do yourself to reduce your distraction and all those sorts of things? But what you're saying now is it's it's yes, absolutely, you need the personal time management stuff, but it's not enough, is it? You need to go that step further. And look at it from more of a systems approach. Not, yeah, you can, I, I get, mean, I you think, can get so far on an individual level. Yeah, because if, if if you look at if you look at individual time management, you're you're thinking about things like task management, attention management, and knowledge management, and th- those are things that you can do. But then you've got to look at the system around you, uh, and that works in the work environment, in the home environment, you know. What I find talking to different different doctors from different specialties is that some are very um, good at managing time in certain roles. So some are very good at managing time in their work role because often they're they're permitted to say no to people or they're allowed to have a bit more um, organizational tweaking that they can do. Whereas at home, for instance, it might be that you're trying to, say, carve out time to do something on a project that you want to do. And you're, you're trying to balance time with children, with partners. And often that conversation can be more difficult and, and people can feel less less empowered and, and, and vice versa, obviously. Mm. But I think in, in all, in all um, time management, I think one of the things that's not been focused on has been that 
that sort of ecosystem that we all live in. And actually, if you're able to to recognize the system that you work in and, and tweak different bits, you get a better result. And, and the analogy I give is it's a bit like putting a Ferrari engine in a 1960s Mini. It will go really fast, but it will be limited by the fact that the gearbox doesn't match or the wheels don't, that they don't have enough traction. And actually, you'd be better off putting in a less powerful engine, but improving the tyres or the suspension or the gearbox and tweaking everything to, say, 50% of its optimal rather than one thing to 100%. Um, and I think a lot of the, the stuff that's been written about time management has focused on the individual, which if you are doing all of the things that you should be doing, but you are still not getting done what you need to get done, it can often lead to sort of negative psychology psychological processes like shame and things like that will actually lead you to feel more stuck yeah that's a, a really good point I remember as, as an audit once I audited my own surgeries and my time management within the surgery and came up with the conclusion that actually the only things I could really change to make things any better was to actually start turn on my computer 10 minutes before my surgery because I felt five minutes was spent just waiting for things to load up and not check my phone in between patients although that sometimes just gave a little bit of a break or, or whatever and not ever go to the loo <laughs> and there wasn't a lot actually in there but there was an awful lot if I think about that internal failure demand that would have absolutely helped that so in your opinion, what is the, what's the, let's start off with the low hanging fruit. What are the sort of quick wins you could do in this internal failure demands? What, what have you seen that's quite easy to change that people forget about so, changing? Uh, I think, I mean, if, if we look at, for instance, the, the, the GP setting, uh, one quite easy change is to move from siloed working to um, outcome-based working. So let's say you have a, a patient who has diabetes, hypertension, uh, heart problems, that you're going to want to call them in for a review. Um, rather than give them three appointments, why not just give them one longer one so it's less impact on their time? You're capturing often the same information across all three of those clinical issues that, that's required for you to collect and manage that person successfully. And then they follow up with a GP on the same day. You improve your compliance rate, you make it easier for the patient, and you make it easier for the practice. Uh, the downside of that, and I suppose the caveat and the resistance comes in that if you can't get the patient in, then obviously you may have lost more time in one single go, which can feel a bit frustrating. Um, but certainly when I've worked at surgeries that have, have moved to, say, doing that, um, and, and reducing the need to keep bringing patients back or keep collecting the same data, it's improved efficiency, patients have preferred it, and, and um, sort of the complement rate has gone up because it's just made it easier for, for the majority of people. Um, likewise, one of the things that, that comes up in general practice a lot is, is information requests. So uh, let's say a receptionist is taking a call and wants a bit of information or wants to let a GP know about something, they'll often send a screen message. Um, the problem with that is that, that psychology creeps in. So they'll often send the screen message to the person who's least likely to complain um, and therefore is less likely to, to give them a hard time for asking a question. And that, and that person who, end, who started off being nice ends up being used up because they're the go-to person for everything. Um, or let's say uh, meetings. Meetings are a, are a huge source of internal failure demand in, in general practice because it's, it's the biggest single use of um, practice time outside of, of consulting, and it, it could be managed so much better, even just by um, doing a lot of work prior to the meeting and then just using the meeting to discuss key points that are raised. And I think that applies across all industry. We often use meetings as a, as a proxy for team cohesion, but it ends up being a less successful way of doing that. You, you may as well use the meeting, use it for what it's there for, to gain consensus and opinion um, and move, move something forward. And then if you want to build team cohesion, 
make time specifically for that rather than try and do two things less successfully at the same time. I get it. You're pushed for time. And with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole, and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops top five episodes sorry and leap into your happiest thriving self again just go to you are not a slash quiz mm. yeah and i know that definitely applies not just for general practice but for loads of other organizations that actually possibly even more meeting heavy than than general practice because actually the work is done in the meetings you know mm. if you're not def- not directly client facing or whatever so that can be hard i guess i'm looking at all this ed and i can see how this would really help on a practice level but i'm wondering how would this help me individually because if i've got that patient going just for the one appointment that's great but all that will happen is they'll just slot more patients in with me and i'll just be just as busy as before I can see how sorting out the meeting time would be would be good. Um, and the information requests, yeah, I can see, you know, they're, they're not, we all know that if you're really nice, you'll just get everyone asking you to do all the stuff than if, than if you're the really snappy person. So what what is there that an individual can do to affect change that's actually going to make a difference to their day-to-day time management within their work? I think it depends on where they're struggling with time management. Mm. Um, And people really only know that they're struggling with time management when it hits crisis point and actually they've they've ended up going home at 10 o'clock three weeks in a row uh, where they should have been home at seven um, or where there's been a complaint or there's been specific feedback about something that's gone wrong. I think one of the one of the problems that we have in general practice is that it in some ways is seen as an unlimited service. Um, and we know that it isn't an unlimited service. Um, so I think from an individual level, the key thing is if you're creating time, um, it's okay to use the time that you create for yourself. It's okay to use that time to do things that you would you would otherwise have done Uh, but that requires having boundaries and that requires being open and honest with people so I meet a lot of GPs who will do things like they will come in very very early they will get through all of their tasks and they'll be out of the door perhaps an hour early because they've finished all their phone calls Um, and that works very well for them but it can create stress within the team because other people think well look at them they're not pulling their weight because they don't see the effort going in they're only seeing what they're there to observe um likewise again if you're a very quick consultant, what can sometimes happen is that there's almost a pressure on you to do more work because you're freely available and i think we need to move away from this culture of um you know if you're free therefore you must be doing something because someone else isn't what we should be looking at is well how do we make this system feel better for everyone because actually maybe that person needs that time to have lunch or to go on a walk yeah. or to to rest because actually we know that how we process time um, from a neurobiological perspective is very tied up with our circadian rhythm clock uh you know all those brainstem structures dopamines so if we're depressed or emotional or stressed or haven't slept our ability to process time goes out the window and I think we've probably both experienced that that state of heightened emotion when you're on a a crash call or you know you've say witnessed someone having bad news broken to them time slows down because it's linked to those those processes Um, and I think awareness of that is really helpful yeah I love that point that this stuff only works works if you're freeing up time to do what you either what you want to do or to have a bit of 
break in your day or a little bit more spaciousness. This doesn't work if all you're doing is freeing up time for the organisation then to give you more work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that is what that is the crux of it. And that's the nub of it. And that is possibly where I think the next really important thing that I know you do lots of teaching about comes in. And that is having these difficult conversations. Mm. I think, I think that, you know, one of the, one of the advantages of say working in a general practice rather than a hospital. Um, and likewise, if you're in a, if you're in a legal firm, if you're in an accountancy firm, if you're in a smaller organization, your ability to affect change is less limited than if you're in a bigger organization and you can try different things you can experiment you can see what each person within that organization needs to make their day feel a little bit better in terms of time management and if you do that you will be working in a happier environment where you're able to give the people who you do need to be seeing that value demand you'll be doing your your best effort for that rather than just seeing it as another task to be crossed off on your list and I think that also impacts on things such as patient safety because we know that if you're hungry angry late tired all of those things you become less good at uh, successfully managing patients and keeping their risk down yeah so in your experience where do we come a cropper with having these conversations is it that we don't raise it in the first place we just put our heads down and we suck it up is it that we raise it, but we then become, it just becomes a complaint rather than, you know, an, an a grievance and a moan rather than actually affecting change? Or is it that people just generally don't want to hear it? Um, I think it's a combination of all three, which I'm aware is a really kind of politician type. <laughs> Good answer. Of, <laughs> let, let me just tease that apart a bit. Mm. I think one of the issues that we have in medicine is our sense of identity. I think that if you take the majority of, of medics, let's say around five to six years of age, they suddenly announce to their, their parents, their guardians, they say something like, I want to be a doctor. And the world goes nuts. Everyone thinks, wow, you're an amazing child. What a really good thing to go for. Um, you must be really clever. Then your teachers start to say it. And this whole environment contracts around you to make being a doctor or being a nurse or any other of these sort of vocational jobs, part of your identity. And so therefore, when we struggle in terms of, say, time management, um, it's an identity threat. And then it becomes a very difficult thing to discuss because we feel that we should be able to cope with more. We should be able to fit more in. We should be able to do just that one more thing, because if we don't, somehow we're not good enough. And I think that's a really toxic thing that can lead to a lot of problems in, in the healthcare um, world. So that would be the answer to the first one. I think, I think we do just tend to suck things up and, and just do more. Uh, and I think there is almost like a culture of reward for people who do that. Um, it, 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 becomes about, it becomes quantity rather than quality. And I think that's a problem. Um, part two is that it is very hard to talk to other people about things without them feeling got at. And I think part of that reason is that we're, we're just not very practiced at doing it. And, and one of the things that I see rather alarmingly is that often it's easier to put in a complaint about someone than it is to actually approach them and say, you know, what's going on here? So I see lots of, I mean, if, you, if you're on any of the, of the medical forums, you'll see lots of commentary about, oh, receptionist A said this, or someone was really slow at doing this. And you'll get someone halfway down the comments who will say something like, they need a disciplinary. And you think, well, how did it go from a mistake to a disciplinary? Is there no intermediate step? Um, and I just think it, it becomes almost easier to complain than it does to approach someone with a genuine authenticity and try and have a conversation where you both learn something about it. So what I what I teach people is that you're, you're trying to have a conversation that is about learning. It is not about blame. So I, I tend to avoid words like feedback because I think the moment we say, can I give you some feedback? The <laughs> alarm bells go up. You know, it, it's one of those, it's one of those words that we associate with something negative. Um, and so I think, 
you know, I tend to get the other person's perspective and say, well, you know, what, what happened there? What, what, what was, what was, what was going on for you? How did that feel? And then I say, well, actually what happened as a result of that is when that person came to see me, they were really angry and really agitated. And that, that pushed me back. How, how can we look at making that process more effective so that you're not feeling on the spot and I'm not feeling stressed? Mm-hmm. And then let, you know, so you, you're basically gaining an understanding of the other person, what it means for them um, and, and how to move things forward as a, as a sort of a shared negotiation. And that's appropriate when, say, you're uh, a colleague of an equal level. You know, there, there are sometimes performance issues that you need to take on board, but I, I don't think that that stops you from having an authentic conversation with someone. What about if you feel, say, if you are salaried employee in an organisation and there's a process that's really causing grief and it's it's not an individual that you can go and feedback to, but it's sort of the whole way people do things and you feel, you know, concerned about even raising it, that it's just going to be seen as you moaning or you not coping. How, how would you suggest mm. people raise this? Because actually people... I guess the higher up you go in an organisation, the sort of the more you get used to what goes on, it just becomes the way we do things around here, doesn't it? And actually, the people that are just joining and more junior often are the people that are spotting the problems and spotting yes. ways you could do things better. But they feel really unable to speak up because they haven't proved themselves or they're too junior and all those sorts of things. Yeah, I think I think that is a really common thing because obviously the longer you you work in an organisation, the more indoctrinated you become in the way that organization does stuff and i think if you look at industry they actually specifically focus on not becoming indoctrinated into into ways of thinking so i think if i was that if i was that junior if i was that new recruit i would i think i would i would note what i'm observing i would send out perhaps an email or raise it in a meeting and say look i've noticed this has anyone else noticed this too? Um, and if they haven't, you can then think, well, is it is it literally just me that's noticed this problem or do I need to gain more evidence of this? Um, and then you can approach people either together with the other people who've noticed it and say, well, this is what we've noticed. This seems to be the impact it's having on us and it may be having an, an impact on, on the organisation. Um, Perhaps if we look at doing it this way, or would you mind if I tried it this way and see the outcome? Um, because what you're doing is you're noticing something and providing a solution. I think people get very defensive if you're just noticing problems without providing solutions or saying, um, or saying, well, can we try it a different way? I like that. And I can certainly think back. Yes, to times when I've been very, very good at pointing out the problems, <laughs> mm. but not necessarily sat and gone, actually, and this would be somewhat something that we could, we could do differently. And actually, you, you don't have to, you know, you may not know enough about that organisation to come up with a solution, but what you can say is, well, this is what we're feeling, or this is what I'm feeling. Um, perhaps this is having the following impact on the organisation maybe we all need to reframe things so that we all have to work less hard because it might feel comfortable doing what we're doing, but wouldn't it be good if it felt better? So there is an element of kind of selling an alternative approach. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the, um, that book getting to yes. Uh, yes, brilliant book. which is just, yeah. So if anyone hasn't read it, it's really worth reading. And we, we teach us a lot on the lead manage thrive course, you know, about, first of all, you know, like you said, getting the facts, getting the facts and figures in front of you, getting some evidence is quite helpful. Depersonalizing it. So, you know, it's not, you've done that to me. It's like, here's, here's the issue, but the, the impact is so, so important because it digs down to what people's interests and needs are, doesn't it? because if the impact is that it's it's causing lots and lots of appointments to be used up then then actually that's a financial impact for the practice it's a workload impact for the the doctors if the impact is that it's affecting patient safety things are falling through the cracks that is a potential um big problem but you need to also know the people that you're talking to who who are able to affect the change you need to know what, what is going to influence them 
because not everybody is influenced by having a happy, engaged workforce. <laughs> Some people might be influenced by by having a running a very financially tight ship. Or some people might be influenced by minimising all the complaints. I don't know. That's the sort of idea of different different currencies. Yeah, I, I think certainly within general practice, and I, I, I have a feeling this might be true in law as well, there's often people at the top who are very interested in maintaining how things are because they're not going to experience the consequences mm-hmm. if, if you know, things don't work or they're not going to have to... Uh, they, they don't want, they, they'll have been through lots of cycles of change and there's often a bit of change resistance and um, a feeling that, oh, well, we've tried that before and it didn't work. Uh, and it, it, it's unfortunate because I think that having that, that more open culture in medicine before problems happen is much better. Because if you look at where things have gone horribly wrong, let's say like the mid-staffs issue, It's raised questions where, you know, we've had to look at things and everyone after the fact goes, oh, well, of course, yes. But very few people think, well, how can we prevent something like that happening again? Or how can we make things more efficient and more effective from our baseline now? Um, So one of the, you know, you'll you'll know this with with your work, this, this whole sort of idea of smart objectives um, what I like to do is to sort of extend that a little bit and say, well, let's make them smarter. Let's add emotion in there. You know, what's the driver for this? What's the positive and what's the negative emotion? Are we doing something because we don't want to feel bad or are we doing something because we want to feel happier or more validated? Mm. And then at the end of that, you might want to add a, a rationale and a review. So, you know, once you've gone through that goal setting process and you've achieved your aim or you've not achieved your aim, you know, you can ask yourself, well, did I do it the best way if I were to do it again? Or would I change what I did? Or did I need to do it in the first place? And I think those things, you know, just extend that model a little bit and make it more um, interesting for people to go through that process. They, they connect people with uh, an ability to reflect and they connect with an emotional state. And so, Ed, what would you say to someone who is working in an organisation where they feel that they don't have, they're not in charge, so they feel they don't have very much power, but they can see hundreds of things that could be better that are causing issues. And let's face it, in every organisation, there's always something that, that could be better, that could be run better. Where would you suggest that this person starts? I think I would start by asking questions rather than criticism so i think i would start by saying well I, you know i've noticed that this happens why does that happen is, is that something that, that has traditionally always happened or was there a reason that this process developed um, because if something's just being done for tradition's sake alone that's normally not a great reason to continue doing it unless there's some other benefit to doing it um, so i would start by asking sort of exploratory questions, I would start by um, then moving on to, well, what do you notice? Is is the way that things are done um, causing a problem? And is that because maybe you don't know enough about the organisation, so you might need to find out some more information? Or actually, do you know enough about the organisation and there is a problem that you've identified? Um, And I think if you, sometimes we can do things off our own back and then present them to to people and say, well, look, I noticed the problem, I fixed it, and I found this. What do you think? Do you think this will apply to the whole organisation? Um, and certainly that's a quite a common thing in, in business where people are almost feel empowered to change the status quo and get credit for doing something. Um, I think one of the things that is perhaps more difficult in, in a general practice setting is that primarily we're doctors. And we're kind of we've we've fallen into the the role of business managers um, very often because our training doesn't always include effective strategies on how to run a business or leadership or how to facilitate change or how to uh, pull apart processes. I mean, even even to the point where, let's say, we develop a new system, almost all GP practices never document how that's done. 
So therefore, there's no central repository for if you've got a patient who needs to be admitted to a palliative care ward, go and look at this document. It tells you exactly what to do. You've normally got to find the one person in the practice who's probably on annual leave that day who knows what to do. And that just uses up a ridiculous amount of time. Yeah, I've I've been there and they've always got an intranet. There's masses of documents. It's like, which one? (laughs) I have no idea where to go and how to do this is quite a straightforward thing. And what do I do? I think that's such a good point. I I remember chatting to a a practice manager or a a group of practices manager. He'd been recruited from business into a very large group of, of, of general practice who were sort of all banding together. And actually, each of these practices were run really well. But this mm. chap had come in and I said to him, you know, are there efficiencies you can make and could people do things better? And he almost fell off his chair laughing because he's like, you have no idea. Absolutely. <laughs> he said, this is just, you know, and everyone's doing their best. But until someone's actually properly looked at it, there, are so, there is so much you can do to make this so much better. There is no reason why you have to be working like this. Um, mm. And it was really interesting just to get that perspective of, of, of an out outsider just sort of well he wasn't an outsider anymore but he'd really really had a good look at what was going on so ed we're nearly out of time um if you had uh, we need to we're we're gonna have to do another one because i think i really like to dig down a little bit more about speaking up and having these assertive conversations because there's the biggest thing i the biggest issue i think for people in work is being able to speak up, to raise concerns, to give difficult feedback, although we're not using the word feedback anymore. <laughs> we're using the word learning, talking about learning or, you know, improvements. Um, that is the single biggest thing I think people struggle with across the board. And it leads to, um, well, I guess the cause is sometimes poor psychological safety. Um, we had a podcast came out a few weeks ago about that. But also it's just leading to all sorts of issues just being perpetuated and continuing. So I'd love to get you back to talk about that. But we're talking now about time management as it applies to me as an individual working in an organisation with the recognition that actually there's only so much you can get your Ferrari engine really good. But you there's only so much that can do if it's then in that mini. What top tips would you got would you have for that individual? So I think the the first one I would say comes from a a kind of a task management basis. So I would I would say my my first tip would be think of the time first and the task second. So we often get into a habit of say writing a task list, um, and then we have a block of time. We say, oh well, that that task will take too long. I can't do it, and you end up just not doing the task because the perfect opportunity never comes along. And that's because we see, well, we often see tasks as jigsaw pieces that we're trying to slot into the right time. So I would say, think about how much time you've got. And if you're writing a task list, write down roughly how long each task will take. So you can say, well, I've got a 20 minute block now. Let me pick one of those 20 minute tasks and just get it done. So that would be my first tip. The second one, if you're struggling with with completing tasks, break it down into the four elements of what that task requires for completion. So there's task management, which is, you know, what what needs to be done. There's attention management, which is, do you have a clear mental headspace or enough of a headspace to be able to do that task? And and things like the Pomodoro technique and setting timers are really good for, for attention management. And then there's knowledge management. Do I have enough knowledge to do that task to a suitable degree. Uh, And the fourth one is, do I work in a system where I can do this effectively or effectively enough? Mm. I think the third thing I would look at, the third tip is when you're looking at tasks, recognize that you have four options. You can do it, you can delegate it, you can defer it, or you can delete it. Um, And really deferring it is just doing it. So really, there are only three, but pick one. Don't leave it sat there for ages. You know, you normally know whether this is something that you can do or whether you can't do or whether you need more information to do. And so there would be my three sort of take home messages. Thank you. And I think for me, what's really come out of this is 
actually staying in your zone of power actually what is it that you as an individual what control do you have over the system you might not have very much but you have control over those conversations that you have Mm. how you feed stuff back what you notice what you try out and actually that's a lot more than we normally do often we notice there's something wrong and we just sit and whinge about it and we get stressed about it rather than bringing it up using those really good sort of communication techniques of, of bringing it up in a non-threatening, non, oh, I don't know how to say it, a non arsy way. <laughs> that, that'll do. <laughs> that'll do. Because <laughs> actually most of us just bring stuff up in a really arsy way and then it goes really badly because everyone's amygdala, tr- chimp, chimps are triggered and everyone's chimping all over the place and it doesn't work. Um, but yeah, stay in your zone of power. Think about, you know, what else could I do in, in, in this? And obviously pay attention to your own time management your own attention exactly like you said but don't neglect the system stuff and don't be frightened of the system stuff but you need to go about it right yeah i'd go with that great so ed if people want to find out more about you or more about your work um how can they do that so if if it's specific things in relation to time management in say general practice Uh, I've written a book um, and you can put my name into Amazon and you'll get uh, Managing Time in Medicine, uh, which is the book that I wrote, which talks about time and task management from an individual level and from a practice level. Um, If you want more information about having difficult conversations or challenging conversations with people and you're a healthcare professional, this, this group is really only open to healthcare professionals just because of the nature of the topics that we talk about. Um, If you uh, look for difficult conversations in medicine on Facebook, or if you search for 10 minute medicine on Facebook, you'll you'll find a link to it. Um, Feel free to join. I do a, I do a session every week um, where I look at a, a challenging aspect of medicine and healthcare and how we can have that conversation more effectively. Oh, fantastic. And we'll, we'll put those links in the show notes that people can, can get to them really easily and presumably they can they can contact you uh through that facebook group or just yeah get absolutely you on linkedin or yeah so i'm on linkedin as well and if anyone is looking specifically for um communication training or time management training then feel free to message me um, and then we can have a conversation about what your needs are perfect thank you so much for being being here today that's been a really fascinating conversation and we'll get you back soon if that's okay Absolutely fine. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please subscribe to my You Are Not A Frog email list and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have enjoyed it, then please leave me a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. So keep well, everyone. You're doing a great job. You got this.